the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 203, recorded Friday, July 10th, 2015. Gerrymandering. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tamal Bright. I am your host with us this week, live from the swamps of Secaucus, New Jersey, Mr. George Tucker, chief um, everything at World Stage in my left side of my brain. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm doing fine. I'm not really a chief here, but thank you very much for thinking so. The the educator, not the engineering coordinator. Sorry. Yes. There you go. Uh, also with us is editor of AV Technology, Miss Margot Duwahi. How are you, ma'am? Excellent. Just imagine me waving to you um, through through this frozen screenshot here. <laughs> it's a very nice screenshot. <laughs> I actually just took it a few hours ago. Well, there you go. Uh, Margo's uh, in, in the midst of, of renovation, so if you're watching the video portion, that's why. Uh, well, it's a very nice picture. Uh, last but not least, Ms. Penny Sittler from uh, Draper. How are you, ma'am? Hello, I'm doing great. Very cool. Uh, Penny is, uh, is uh, or Draper in general, is one of our underwriters, and uh, we like bringing them on from time to time, so welcome, ma'am. Um, so we're going to kick this off. First thing up, um, as, uh, well, a bunch of, of very fine publications uh, put out this week, uh, the announcement that the Cedia registration is up and running. Uh, actually started uh, a couple days ago. Today is the 9th. Uh, opened on July 8th, so... Okay, yeah, just just yesterday actually. Um, so here's the thing with this. This is actually be our our second year uh, covering the show. Margot uh, and everyone at New Bay has been doing it for a while. Actually, uh, if you didn't know, they they're the ones who do the the um, the show dailies for both Cedia and and for uh, Infocom. Uh, so Mr. Tucker, we're going to kick this off for you. And, and here's the reason why. Uh, and this is actually kind of why we started covering it in the first place. Uh, AV Week and AV Nation is is not inherently residential. Uh, but George, from the last couple of years of, of watching CDO, uh, what's the significance for folks who are in the pro market for CDO? Well, I mean, first of all, it does focus on the residential market, which is no small potatoes, to be honest. Uh, and there's where some of those guys are doing some of the more significant pushing of the envelope. Uh, when I worked back as a tech support manager or one of the manufacturers, inevitably, inevitably, it was the residential guys who were the ones saying, I'm trying to do X. And it was, well, we've only just started doing that, you know, and we don't have the technology, but they were trying to push that envelope. Uh, so that stuff is always there. Uh, a lot of people at Infocom would tell me that they were making, or they would think that CD is akin to, say, CES, which it is not at all. Uh, it really is more in-depth than that. So it's a good place to go, and they've got excellent training. All right, Margot, to, to George's point, this is not CES, right? And if you don't know CES, CES is the, is the Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, lots of, of displays, lots of everything from, I think last year they had USB popcorn makers uh, at CES. <laughs> so explain to folks who've, who've never been to, to CEDIA um, 
what what it is and, and I guess what it isn't. Well, from my experience, what I loved about it was that it was that cutting edge pushing of the envelope, um, but also looking at standards and how to create standards around residential installations. So from a family, you know, multifamily dwelling, even to smaller apartment units, how can we think about ways to standardize distributed audio and video? Obviously, that's undergone so many changes in the past 15 years since I've been covering the AV beat, but I think it's important to recognize, though, that there is not the same recognition around UL certification, you know, so there are consumer ver versus commercial loads and safety requirements that obviously if something's commercial rated, you're looking at it in a different way than if you're going to be specking it for a small house or a 1,200 square foot dwelling unit. So I think folks are pretty well in tune with that that are in the industry and they know that when you're going to a CEDIA show, you're looking at that with the user requirements in mind. Uh, but other things that I think are interesting about Cedia are that some of the first uh, in integrations of the iPod and the I iPad were these home installations. So we definitely look to the creativity, to the ingenuity of the residential installation community as inspiring. And again, thinking about standards as ways to help everybody that's a stakeholder in home automation and smart home. And it's a really unique time right now because we have Nest, we have Amazon Echo, more uh, interest and I think consumer consciousness is being raised around what we can do from a DIY standpoint, but that gives installers a, a time and a chance to say, but with the value added services of our integration firm, you can have peace of mind, you can make sure that it's working properly with your, you know, the low voltage system, etc. And I actually have a call to action. I would like to galvanize my friends and colleagues and neighbors in the home residential automation integration space that I think we need to do more to educate people about the difference between hiring a CDS certified installer versus a life hack or a DIY job. And I think that Cedia itself could be doing much more to promote this on a really granular local neighborhood by neighborhood level. I mean the Apple Store is proud seller of Sonos. You still have the Geek Squad and Best Buy doing their their home installations, but what about a broader initiative that is really getting into that granular level? So that's just a question I have. I'm sure lots of things are going on that are just on my periphery, but as a general call, and now as a as a new homeowner in beautiful Northampton, Massachusetts, going through the smart home uh, situation myself, I'm doing a lot of it um, from my own experience. I've been testing projectors for the past you know 15 years, so I I love doing it and I'm comfortable with it. But I had to go out and seek those. Uh, companies to see what's around the Western Massachusetts and Connecticut areas. It was just a little bit harder. There's a little bit more detective work than finding a flooring company, etc. So I think it's a really unique time with the, with the Nest and Wi-Fi enabled IoT, etc. for Cedia to really get in people's faces and push the envelope a little bit. Well, and, and you're someone who works in the industry. So if it was, if it was a, a research job for you, imagine if someone 
just you know everyday person who just wanted to add some smart objects to their home. Imagine the um, the the trouble they would have finding someone who was qualified who had had the right certifications. Yeah, get on Facebook. You know, it's it's so much more than being going into the CDA dealer log or you know because then again a homeowner would have to know okay well I'm gonna go to Cedia and plug in my zip code and figure out which vetted it's like an Angie's list sort of thing what are the vetted home installation companies that are reputable that are creative that have a great gallery of photos and great user reviews and testimonials that I can check out so there was that detective work on my part, but of course the firms here are fantastic. They have 20 years or 30 years of experience, but there's still such a niche, sequestered and cloistered feeling around home automation and home AV integration. People can have so much better quality of life with their integrated Apple TV, etc. That is so much lower barrier to entry. It used to be so cost prohibitive. It's a really different situation now. I think Cedia could really have a fun new kind of presence around what what do millennials want in their homes and their apartments and yeah. how can we meet those needs? Well, and how can we meet those needs without ripping out, you know, 100-year-old walls too? I mean, George and I have praise. Yeah, praise. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not picking up Marco. Marco's going through renovation. That's what I'm going through right now. George's uh, 1901 Colonial, George? Mm -hmm. 1901 Colonial um, in, in New York. And, you know, it, it's... Huh? Lathe and plaster. But yeah, exactly. Lathe and plaster. You know, it's 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 not fun. Um, the the college I worked for when I was a technology manager, the original construction was the 1830s, 1840s. So imagine that lathe and plaster, if you would please. So you know that was those were some of the issues we ran into as as in in the pro and, and a lot of people still do in the in the residential. Uh, one of the tips that that CDA gives us in the five tips to kickstart your planning. Book your hotel, preview the training schedule. That's always important. Mark your calendar. If you're mar if you aren't a member of Cedia, join. And number one on that list is preview the exhibitor list. Guess who's an exhibitor? Draper. Uh, Penny, from from your standpoint, and, and this is going to sound a little mean, but it's not. I, I want you to just kind of, of you know kind of fill this out as as a projector screen manufacturer. Um, why do you go to Cedia? Well, the great thing about Cedia from our perspective is that we can let people get face-to-face -face with the products and see what the real difference is between one screen and another. Change it out. Um, we'll have Tech Vision there. We're still working out all the details of what we'll have, but, but we will have things that you just can't tell from looking at a website. Or even, gosh, reading a brochure, talk about the dark ages. <laughs> so possible to do that, though. It is, and in the, in the leave behinds, as I think Brock McGinnis wrote in one of his blog posts recently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you guys also do do shades as well. Is that something you would yes. show? At, okay. We do all. We do always bring at least a little bit about our shades to Cedia. Um, so, I can say we're still working out the booth this year. Okay. But it's safe to say that you'll you'll be able to learn about our shades there, and um, we can do the whole range of uh, you know manual and motorized and automated controls and tie it into the system. And in general, what is the what do you guys take away from it? I mean, obviously you get to you're, you're the clients, the customers. 
whether they're integrators or you know a lot of folks still bring bring their clients to them they can physically see and touch and feel your products what do you guys take away from it well a lot of it is about getting to have those conversations get face to face in the field um, it's a different audience than we get to talk to at other events like Infocom even ISD there's there's a representation of the residential market that it's a different animal than CDM one of the things I don't know about is that Infocom this year said that there were more end users present. Define that. Well, that they said there were corporate managers and there were um, building owners and there were people who were, you know, doing the end portion of that at Infocom. And Cedia, I don't know if they're if that's true too. Are they inviting the bigger homeowners in? Are they inviting some of the bigger, you know, developers will be there, but that seems like what we were talking about a little bit, right? That there's a more direct connection there? That's a great question, George. And I, I think that architects have been involved with CEDIA for a long time. I believe there are steering committees and standard committees with designers and architects. So that interior design community, everyone involved on the job site does have some way to interface. But question, home, yeah, bigger homeowners, developers, I'm not sure. That's a really interesting point. Well, and maybe it's not even them. I mean, let's be honest. If if you have a hundred million dollar home, you're not going to a trade show. You have you have people for that, right? I mean, you've got uh, our buddy Rich Ragozo who calls himself um, the digital concierge, which I absolutely love, and I would I would steal in a heartbeat that's at great. that title. Yeah, it's awesome. But that's what he does, right? I mean, he goes to Richie is 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 a great CDA guy. Um, he goes to shows like this, and he is he is not only he's a great programmer, right? And he's a he's a great designer. But he is that that customer liaison, right? He he is the person. So, in effect, he is the end user for Draper. He is the end user for Crestron, um, because he's who he is who they have to convince to use their stuff. Because you know what? Um, you know I don't know. Pick, pick a pick a celebrity or pick somebody who has a high a high end home. They're not going to go to these nine times out of ten. Yes, you're going to have folks who 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 enjoy this sort of thing and, and really like going to things like this. But nine times out of ten, they're gonna write a check, right? And, and they're gonna just say, you know, do what you think is, is cool. And if I don't think it's cool, well then you're fired and I'll find somebody else. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we do not see end users come in at CDA. Um, there it would, would be a completely different thing because the quote end users at Infocom are so highly educated. They are people like that AV manager at a university who's on the scale of a lot of dealers doing just as much work. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's talk about my favorite subject in the whole, at least my current favorite subject in the whole wide <laughs> world. O-L-E-D. God love LG. I mean, yeah, yeah that's just awesome. Uh, this is from Reuters. LG display to invest up to $803 million for a new OLED panel line. Holy cow. Uh, I want to say it in, in the South Korean um, vernacular. Plan to invest up to 900 billion won. That just sounds cool. <laughs> um, the plant will produce flexible OLEDs. Uh, it's for medium and small size uh, OLED displays. 
So, uh, Mr. Wahi, we'll kick this off with you. Whether it's in higher ed or what have you, um, what does this say about uh, LG's um, bullishness or bearishness? I guess is the best way to put this. Uh, how do they? How do you think they see OLED by uh, by this investment? I love this news. I was so pleased to read this. Um, I think they're recognizing the importance of mobile, our BYOD culture, and there's obviously debate, you know, benefits of OLED versus LED and LCD. We see LCD having dominance in certain sectors, LED common in phones, but, you know, LED has that back light. You just can't get away from it. OLED produces their own light. It's a pixel-by-pixel control. I think it's really smart. I'm just worried about battery power. How much, you know, how are they going to power it? Um, it's a very interesting moment that they're really taking a direct and aggressive approach for smartphones and wearables. So we think about that a lot in the higher ed space, as well as corporate, obviously. But it'll be really interesting to see, you know, how they power it. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I I, I often am. Um, isn't it uh, less power consumption than a typical LED? OLED? Yeah. Um. Yeah, actually, I think that's probably the pre- reason why cost has been a big factor. So I'm just curious about their strategies, you know, okay. for because once you you figure out one piece of the puzzle and then move on. But um, we saw a lot of OLED displays at Infocom that were just brilliant, really bright. With um, you know, the black uh, color is just it's a a point of distinction, and I would highly recommend that anyone who has questions, just for your your personal edification, the differences between OLED, LED, and LCD, just to go check them out in person. Absolutely, and, and the other thing is, um, so I was a big fan of plasma, right? Uh, it is the closest thing, if it doesn't surpass plasma, it is the closest thing to plasma that we've gotten to date. Um, Without so. burn-in. Without well, without well, yeah. I did the later versions of of, yeah. of plasma didn't have that bad of burning. Uh, all right, Penny, I'm going to give you an idea, and if you actually do it, then I don't know, name <laughs> name it after me. So you've got um, that's all we need is a freaking Albright display um, or an Albright product. Um, you've got it. You've got Albright, this. Albright, it's perfect. Well, there we go. <laughs> yes, thank you. Did not even. Oh my God, I did not even make that. Um, so you've got. A significant investment by by a client here, by a company. Um, one of the things with OLED that I that I have held uh, to be at least interesting is the ability to roll it around, and because the 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 diameter that you can put this thing in, and you, I think you might see where I'm going with this, is the ability to roll it around a roller. So you all could take the same technology and put it around a a projection screen roller. And you could have a pull-down OLED display. Just, just saying. So, no, nothing. I got nothing. All we've right. been we've been watching o- OLED okay. develop for a long time. It'll be interesting if we can ever get it onto a screen. We'd love to. Oh Lord, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mr. Tucker, from from your standpoint, you've heard me yammer about this for four or five years now. What do you what do, what do you think the significance is of of an eight hundred million dollar investment? I, I don't know where they're at at the moment, and that's my problem with it, is that they seem to not really be any further along than they said they would be a couple of years ago when we talk, discussed the story about them investing in stuff. $800 million doesn't seem like a heck of a lot to me for 
the what? full rollout of a technology. No, I'm mean, you're talking about tooling, you're talking about factories, you're talking about training and, and technologies. And I'm not quite sure that that's a significant investment for a real massive rollout. I'm not, I'm Do you have not $800 million? Dollars? No, I don't, but then again, I'm not a corporation. Okay. Still Maybe it's already in place and they found a way to use existing tooling systems, but I don't know. Would I like it? Yes. But I'm not quite sure anymore. Okay, so you're 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 almost poo-pooing it because you're not sure where they're going with this. Is that is that my feeling? Right, and what they're expending alone to create a product. A couple of months ago we talked about how companies were dropping out of OLED production as well. Yeah, as absolutely. And how they were going it alone and looking for cheaper alternatives. Or they're going with what people were buying. What is $800 million going to buy you alone? And again, it's factories, it's training, it's technologies, it's people. So, I don't know. Where are you going, Bubs? I don't know. All right. They're only talking small now. They're saying smartphones and wearables. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that may very well be where they, you know, because, you know, to Margo's point, they're, they're seeing the, the advancement and the need for OLED in the mobile platforms and the wearables, the watches, the tablets, and everything, and cell phones, you know, for that matter. So, you know, the whole, uh, what was it, a few years ago, Samsung's commercial during CES of the, the fold-up display, the fold-up uh, fold phone that kind of flipped out into a, into a mini-micro um, tablet. So, all right, uh, next up, we've got a Microsoft story, and it has nothing to do with them. What was it, 16,000? 8,000 people. They asked this week, but that was this. This was not it. Um, the uh, Microsoft. Uh, this is an interesting one, right? So AOL is in talks with Microsoft to take over the display ad business, and um, the reason I bring this up is is kind of for a, a kind of a, a side thing that that AV has gotten involved in, and that's display uh, display advertising, whether it's digital out of home or it's you know digital signage or things of that nature. Two things here. First of all. Uh, the fact that Microsoft is getting out of it. Um, second part is the fact that AOL is taking it over. Um, so, Margot, from your standpoint, um, where do you see either Microsoft going in this deal or even AOL going in this deal? Is it the fact that Microsoft's trying to unload certain, um, I guess, less than profitable businesses? Again, I mentioned the fact that they, they, they cut a number of of jobs this week, or is it the fact that you know AOL, AOL may just see an opportunity here? It's it's an amazing moment of of identity politics in a way, and who's focusing on the user experience? And I think that it could be that to your last point about just shoring up resources and getting energy around what they know to be successful. So maybe it's that's. Something to consider, again, Microsoft confirmed that they're going to stop collecting their own map data, and they're, but they will continue to offer Bing maps. So I think there's just a shakeout uh, with the attrition that they've announced this week, which is significant. But then we have the hullabaloo of the Microsoft Surface Hub. So there's, there's definitely um, a kind of gerrymandering, I think, of that internal culture. I don't have any friends that work for Microsoft currently, but when I was a, sort of a cub reporter and coming through the ranks in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a kind of energy and interest that I think they're trying to get back now. So maybe it's just a, a moment of really trying to define their core competencies. That's sort of what I took away from it. 
And since it's just a deal, is this confirmed or are they in talks? I actually just had a chance to skim the article. But is it a it's a it's a done deal? It's an almost done deal. How about that? So Yeah. Um, I read one quote about thinking of the potential of of feeding that ad business through the Xbox. And I thought that was very interesting, looking at ways of vertical integration. And I think that's really smart. Well, and that's something that they've done for a while, whether it's it's um, through the Xbox. And, and if you've played games for any amount of time in the last four or five years, one thing that you will recognize is this um, move to advertising inside the games. Exactly. Um, whether it's uh, the latest Madden or it's uh, the oh the shoot 'em up games uh, Grand Theft Auto, where you have actual honest to goodness billboards with actual honest to goodness billboard ads in them. Um, so it's very interesting. And by the way, Margot, I do believe that is the first time gerrymandering has ever been uttered <laughs> on this very program. So kudos to you. Uh, much more, <laughs> more, more big words. Good night, uh, Mr. Tucker. Is she right? Where you know the the fact that that Microsoft may be just kind of focusing here? Yeah, and AOL as well. I mean, this yeah. is AOL's forte: advertising. Uh, yep. Despite what a lot of people think about AOL or know about them, they are advertising. They bought a number of online advertising technology systems a couple of years back, uh, just around the time they broke from Time Warner. So that's what their focus is, especially even with their hyper-local content that they've been doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Forgive me, I forget the name of what it's called. but uh, It's Bing something, I'm sure. No, yeah, well, it's in association with Bing, obviously. Yeah. So there's a tie-in there to get your digital signage, your research, your data. Again, big data coming into play here about where do you acquire that microcosm of data and be able to pinpoint stuff. And AOL, through those things, has the technology. And it's a partnership with Microsoft, who is shedding some other technologies and other hardware things pretty quickly. Nokia and a few other items that they were sort of getting rid of saying, yeah, that was a good idea, but not. Um, well, that's the so, other thing. Is, is that whole Nokia thing, right? I mean, they, they spent a boatload of money for that, right? We, we talked about $800 million for LG. No, no, this was in the billions of dollars for, for Nokia because they were going to make their own mm -hmm. um, Windows phones, and they, they didn't see that. So, uh, <laughs> Benny, from, from your standpoint and just from, from a manufacturer standpoint in general, um, you know, how do you, I guess I, the best way to ask this is, how do you successfully spin this off to where it makes sense um, from a manufacturing standpoint and, and you still come out looking good? <laughs> you know, how do you do that from, from, I mean, seriously, because you guys, you, Draper, if you don't know this, if you're just familiar with Draper from, from Screens and Shades, they make a ton of other things, right? You guys do a lot of sports equipment. So... Um, let's say that you were spinning them off, right, or, or doing something else with them. How would you say that in such a way that you all are great, you all are groovy, you don't work anymore, you're, you're going over there? So. Yeah, we've not done that. No, you have I didn't say <laughs> we you. We like to just keep growing here. There so, you go. So, yeah, I don't have that direct experience of doing something like that. I'm interested, to, though, to see how these companies which are you know, really mature in the tech sector do keep trying to do new things. Obviously, they don't all work. <laughs> no, no, they don't. And that was, that's the unfortunate part from the, from the Microsoft standpoint. The other thing about Microsoft is it, you know, a bunch of us gave them a hard time last year, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and I was, yeah, I gave them a hard time, too. For granted, they had, they had phone chargers and, and really big screens of the World Cup in, in Infocom 2015 or 2014. But 
you know, it, our Brad Grimes from Infocom, um, I think said it best when we when we had him on uh, from from the show. Um, nice first step, right? This year, I I, w- I would say both both ISE and and Infocom this year. Nice first step. Lots of interest. Um, there's a number of integrators that I work with uh, as a, as a as a programming house that are already asking if we can do things with it and stuff like that. So yeah, good good for them. So. Uh, Penny, we're going to start with you on this one simply because it has something to do with screens, and it's really cool. Uh, from DigitalTrends.com, ultrasound technology that can turn a TV screen into a malleable surface. <clears throat> yeah, mm-hmm. that's interesting, interesting piece. And, you know, of course, the first thing I have to think is, We've been working for years and years to make screens just as flat as they can be, and now they're bending them. <laughs> well, that is true. It's a it's a three D. Just 3D when you think you know. Yeah, just when you think you know. Yeah. Um, so, what are some of the issues with doing that? I mean, seriously, because you know, because we've gotten to the place where uh, projector mapping is becoming more commonplace, and you're 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 getting oh, yeah. you're getting outside of the need for special equipment, there are projectors that are doing it internally now. Um, so, you know, is this something that, that makes sense to you as, I guess, as an evolution of, of screen technology? I We're touching everything. Yeah. So why wouldn't we want to reshape it? Yeah, it's, it looks like fun. I'm not real far with the real business applications for it. <laughs> Well, well, I don't I, think I am probably are some. Much. I haven't found them. Yeah, Mr. Tucker, from your standpoint, is this is this just a, a trend or a, a not trend, but a a gimmick, a gadget like uh, like 3D, or is it something usable? You know, it does come off a little bit gimmicky, I have to say. Yeah. But there is some real uses for this. Um, not just the people who like to be tactile and like knobs. Um, <laughs> nice. Um, but. There are control surfaces you want to be sure that you've done right. Mm. Uh, you know, when you get to anything from an energy plant or emergency services system things, or the haptic feedback thing has been sort of a quest for a lot of people uh, to not have to worry about the graphics but feel what you're pushing. Uh, it's going forward, going in reverse to go forward, basically. Um, there's some sensitive, like when you really want to tweak something in a very granular way and very small increments, that kind of touch interface is what you would want. Doing it on a frictionless screen or a screen that doesn't really give you a feedback, it's harder to do that, and we've all tried to do it. You ever try to edit a video on an iPad? It's not fun. Yeah. You want to go back to a mouse, even a mouse with a little rolling ball or something, but that's where I see that kind of stuff working. Now, what's really interesting about this is that they're using, well, for, for lack of a better phrase, standing waves in audio to make the screens do what they do. That's that ultrasound technology. Mm-hmm. And they're basically using standing waves. It's basically a magnetic resonance and forcing a null <laughs> to hold up this shape and move the, the material in a certain way. Uh, it's, it's kind of fascinating that that would be able to keep going and be something that's consistent. But, but again, that's, that's really what I see that for. I want to throw that switch and know the switch was thrown. No, that, and that's valid. That's absolutely yeah. valid. Uh, Margot, from from your standpoint, AV technology or, or just some of the stuff that you've seen around the industry, is this something that that is interesting, or, or to George's point, that is has a decent use case? I think George makes a great point, uh, and Penny as well. I don't see I don't see a screen as static though. 
I don't see excellent design and an excellent GUI as static. I, so I, when I first read this article, I thought, this isn't solving a problem for me because, no, I'm, maybe I'm not wrapping it like a nanolumens um, LED wrap or I'm not warping it. It's not malleable to the touch, but I think really good design, and this kind of bisects with the Zero UI article that we'll probably talk about later, but I think excellent design does create three-dimensional movement and that multi-dimensional experience. So for me, it doesn't solve a problem. It does feel a little gimmicky. It's certainly very interesting. I love anything that's using bleeding-edge sound design um, in unique ways, but again, just thinking of the nuts and bolts of it, questions again, what, what, was, what is the strategy for making it sustainable and for giving it a decent battery life? Those are the kinds of questions that I think of, not to be the skeptic, but they just come to mind. Well, in the sustainable part too is something that that I've kind of been watching over the last six six seven months. Um, I wrote a blog about this a few months ago about green green AV and not just the green AV part of energy consumption, but the green AV part of how it's made. Right? Um, it was a story that came out. Uh, there was a, a accident in, in South Korea um, with a certain uh, display manufacturer and released a lot of bad chemicals and, and uh, injured some folks and, and it got me thinking about you know how things are made and I, I had a chance to go see uh, Draper's manufacturing plant and I didn't exactly see respirators and and, uh, and death suits and stuff <laughs> of, you know people walking around you know with you know uh, biohazard suits on and stuff like that so it, it just it, it's important and Marco makes a good point of, of how this stuff is really made is is getting to be more and more important, I think probably as important, if not more so, than uh, the energy consumption. And, and, you know, we can, people can argue about that, you know, until we're all blue in the face. But, you know, that's that's a very good point, Marco. Um, uh, she mentioned it. Uh, this comes from Fast Company, uh, fastcodedesign.com. The Zero UI, what is the Zero UI, and why is it crucial to the future of design? Quote, unquote, for better or worse, a large amount of design work these days is visual. That makes sense since the most essential products we interact with have screens. But as the Internet of Things surround us with devices that can hear our words, anticipate our needs, and sense our gestures, what does that mean for the future of designs, especially as those screens go away? <clears throat> Interesting, as for someone who programs some of those screens for a living. Uh, Mr. Tucker, um, Zero UI, where are, we, uh, where are we going with this? Well, it's intuitive stuff, isn't it? It's really more about knowing exactly what the controller, meaning the person or the thing controlling it, wants to do and anticipating that in some way. Um, they make the example of how two different people might say they want volume up. An older person such as me want, may want just instinctively think knobs and a sort of circular motion. Others might think, you know, the stroke up to get to get that sort of volume level up. It really is about predicting, and it's about data in the end. I know they're talking about GUI here. I know they're talking about you know an interface, mm -hmm. but it's really not an interface. It's more predictive and responsive. Isn't I say, it an interface though? Well, hang on, isn't it an interface though? If, if even if it doesn't like, have a screen. Technically, it's an interface because it's doing something at your will, but it's more predictive. It's more associative. So if I say, you know, volume up, 
it knows that it's not just volume up, but it's also I want it done now, right? That's a bad example, but you get it. Um, or if I say something quickly, that it means an action that needs to be done quickly. Or if I walk into the house and say, you know, uh, lights kitchen, it knows that I want to go to the, the sink. And it doesn't have to turn off every turn on every light. So but, do you give your house a, a, a first, last, and middle name so when you call it its full name, it knows it's <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, there was a movie in the 70s about that, right? It's the no, sure. angry. It does that. Um, but no, it's, in all honesty, though, that, that's what it's really about, predictive. And that's a lot, of, a lot of that is big data. A lot of that is learning. A lot of that is understanding. And that's, that's still a big leap, I think. We have Surrey. We have other voice activation systems. But its ability to understand nuance is still not quite there. And that's really more of a matter, I think, of getting a computer powerful enough in a small enough space and enough programmers to say, here's how you learn. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a piece that I think it was in College Humor a few years ago when Siri first became prevalent. Um, it, it was a comedic piece, let's be honest. It's College Humor for crying out loud. But it was uh, it was a, a married couple using Siri to go back and forth and have a, a texting fight. <laughs> Um, and and Siri, to her credit, at least again in this comedic piece, uh, did understand the intuitions and did you know suggest I think at one point buying flowers or, or directions to a flower shop. So we are ways from there. Uh, Marco, you mentioned the the zero UI piece. Um, how far away do you think we are from that? I think we're seeing it now. Uh, any IoT that just reads your steps, if it's a, something like the Fitbit tracker. It's already it's already here in little pieces and then in some regards with larger deployments. Um, but I go back to my initial impression that I don't think UI is inherently one medium or another. I think a GUI can have that three-dimensional chess playing sensation if it's done right. And it's not just about the old-school tricks of creating shadows and movement. I just think that when something's really well designed, you know it. There's a sensation of experience rather than just being that one transactional user. So, but thinking about this piece and putting myself in the position of a lot of our community at AVT, so tech managers in the enterprise, in higher ed. So yesterday interviewed a higher ed manager at NYU. They have 40,000 students. So say how how would this work? How would a zero UI work for a student who might be paraplegic who cannot use gesture but can use voice? But then, you know, thinking about access, thinking about accessibility, thinking about um, who will this disadvantage and who will it advantage? And say you have someone who is a English as a second language user who wants to say projector on. You know, we have professors of all different nationalities and different voices, etc. So how are you going to code the voice activation to know someone with an accent versus someone without an accent? There's a lot to think about. It certainly shouldn't be uh, a major impediment. It's just that it's all of the work that goes into the back end to make it seamless and to make it work flawlessly. It's a Herculean undertaking. But thinking of Siri and how often it works and how often it doesn't, you know, it gives you it gives one pause. It gives me pause. But then I I am a visual person. I like to think of the screen as having potential in new and innovative ways. And 
I mean, how would people play Dance Dance Revolution without the screen? You know what I'm saying? We need the screen sometimes. All right. First she gave us gerrymandering. Now she's given us Dance Dance Revolution. <laughs> I have to have Margot on every week and just pay her. All right. Uh, Penny from... Here's where I, I want to Except gold bars. That's it. Gold bars. Good Lord. <laughs> no wonder you work for New Bay. Wow. Uh, nobody can afford you. Wow. Holy cow. Um, uh, here's where I want to go with this. and Because the... Draper is, has has an interesting culture, right? I, I mentioned that I got to go you know, hang out with him for a day a, a couple months ago. Um, you had somebody there. What was it? A month or so, about three weeks, three or four weeks ago, who who retired after thirty five years, right? Um, you had a big party for him. What'd you do? Cut off his shirt or his pants or something? <laughs> um, and people, uh, yeah, people people walk around the factory and. Uh... Their friends collect souvenirs from the bottom of the pants leg. <laughs> That's what it was. Bottom of the pants legs, and uh, which was very interesting, by the way. Um, very interesting pictures. Um, they didn't cut his pant, all of his pants off, so don't freak out. No, no, no. It's, it's middle of Indiana for crying out loud. <laughs> um, but you've got you have a culture of pe- folks who have been there for years and years and years, right? Yes. As we move into the, the, this zero UI interfaces and, and these these technologies. How do you get folks like you know who like the gentleman who just retired there for 35 years? How do you move them along? Oh well, the the guy whose uh, whose photo went around on that particular story actually was an engineer, and he'd probably been kind of into it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But uh, I don't, from the from the design perspective, everything is is going to this kind of you have to have a 3D mentality in design. You can't you can't think linear. You can't design a website thinking linearly anymore. So it seems to me this is a natural progression. This is where we this is where we're headed. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We we have to think in the 3D chess game. All right, very good. Uh, all right, last but not least, uh, before we give Margot uh, a chance to to talk about some of her stories, um George sent this, and actually George sent me this story like 30 seconds after I read it myself. It was it was a really cool little serendipitous piece. Uh, but the BBC has introduced something, and the BBC has something similar to uh, the New York Times Byte section, uh, which if you're not aware, New York Times actually has a, a technolo- technology development area themselves. BBC does too. Uh, and they've got a micro-bit computer, and they've just released the final design. So this is not... Raspberry Pi, but it's very Raspberry Pi-ish. Um, and uh, they're showing off the, the first prototype. However, uh, they've got a couple of changes. First of all, it's incredibly thin, and it gives folks like me and, and like other programmers, and honestly, a lot of the DIY folks and people who are trying to get kids and, and younger people into technology, it gives them another tool to say, okay, you know what? Here's a micro USB. You plug it into your, into your computer. You blah, boom, bada, bing. You can start programming some pretty simple things. George, from your standpoint, where do you see the biggest use cases uh, for this specific micro uh, computer? Well, part of what you read down below in the article is that it has the ability and some code sets for developing, say, DVD control codes um, for relay systems. Uh, there, there are some very intuitive and real world to our industries uh, examples for this thing. So while Raspberry Pi is great and so is the stuff from Adafruit and uh, mm-hmm. all the rest, 
these are actually being given out to every, I think they call them seventh year, the 12 and 11 year old students in, in Britain. That's a huge, huge development pool of people who will become very, very comfortable not only with the idea of coding, but with controlling things. I know one of the things that we can probably both kibitz here on in the industry is that you can meet a thousand computer programmers or people who know Java, or people who know some very complex coding systems, but getting them to understand how the code inside controls the outside, it's a really big transition. It doesn't seem like it should be, but it is. And this is something I think that gives us a big leapfrog forward on that kind of stuff. So that they can give it to everybody and say, here's something, now learn it, now here's how this controls this. That, that could mean some really interesting changes for us in the next five to ten years. Where does that 12-year-old who's going to write an uh, iPhone app suddenly writes some kind of new control interface system? Yeah, There's I, where it might be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And for those of you watching the video, I'm, I'm showing a side, a side glance at this one. Uh, it's, it's darn near as thin as a credit card. Um, just slightly thicker than a credit card. And uh, now with the little components, the, the micro USB and some other stuff that stick on top of it, it's obviously thicker by by a lot. Uh, but the actual board itself is incredibly thin. So, uh, Margot, from your standpoint, I mean, whether it's you know uh, getting tech managers to start doing stuff like this and, and creating their own coding and creating their own um, interfaces, or you know, in, involving things like uh, getting tech managers involved with some programming classes or, or coding classes. Where do you see this thing going? I love this. I think it's a really exciting and also heartwarming development. I was so happy to read it. I had followed it just a little bit because I follow the BBC on Twitter and always like what they bring to the conversation. But I think it's recognizing that we have a culture of makers. It's way beyond digital literacy now. It's so much more enhanced. It's only going to increase the game, up the game, for the folks that are teaching the classes, the tech managers that are inventorying all of the equipment if, they're not, if the students aren't tanking at home. So thinking about this in a United States situation, this would obviously be these kids, they're amazing. I watched some of their videos. They would be obviously the K through 12 district. So it's a school district or whether it's a private school. So you know, how are we going to inventory that? How are we going to use it in our pedagogy? How is the technology lab or if or collaborative space or huddle room going to support these um, classes that are going to be used for programming, etc.? Some of those questions come to mind. But again, if you have, if you're enhancing the literacy and that culture of makers from such an early age and giving them incentives and a system around that, we're going to see some incredible developments coming from this generation. Absolutely. And just for the record, pedagogy now is another word that... <laughs> you can no. track. Uh, you can track. We should do a, a drinking game with Margot. Um, Penny, Find me up. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think of this thing? I love, love, love what they're doing with the kids. I think that this will just turn some minds on at just the right point in time. I think I've seen some things done that I don't think are that smart with distributing iPads to kindergartners and so forth like that. Yeah. This seems so much smarter. Yeah. Really unleash some talent. Yeah, and that's that's the that's the thing I think I'm I'm most excited about. I've got a, a nine and a seven year old myself. Um, two things that I actually started doing that with them. A buddy of mine at, at Extron, 
uh, turned me on to a book, uh, a very simple book. <laughs> it had to be for me, uh, for Python. And I'm actually taking both of my kids through it very slowly. Um, okay. They've got... Um, I, I bought them some old laptops, and, and we, we, we both, we all three installed uh, a version of, of Linux on it. And so we're going through this whole very slow process of, of all of us kind of, you know, learning this, um, this, this programming language very slowly and very purposely. But again, it's, it's you know, it's one of these things of, of trying to teach, you know, instilling my kids the, the eh, kind of the love of at least um, programming and, and the languages stuff, so... Yeah, I'm I'm kind of excited about this. Uh, all right, Margot, uh, you are our representative of New Bay for uh, for this month. Uh, so we're going to have you go through a couple of uh, stories that has uh, you guys over at either uh, you know AV Technology or or AV Network uh, excited, and uh, we'll show them up on the screen as long as I can I can figure out how to do it. Great. So I could start with a great blog which really is much more than a blog, but uh, an Infocom of Solutions, and that's by Jonathan Owens. And it's, a, it's an Infocom 2015 wrap. It's his particular takeaways, but there's some really interesting and provocative content about uh, AVB being underrepresented at Infocom and some people thinking that Dante perhaps is still a bit of a quote-unquote foreign language. He has some great insights on 4K and drones. So just a really cogent, thoughtful, fun read for anyone that was there or wasn't there. And I'm definitely aware of that. I have a lot of friends that weren't at Infocom but following the Twitter feeds, etc. So if you if you didn't go, it's just as valuable as if you did. So it has definitely something of interest for the whole group of the channel. So whether you're an integrator, a tech manager, a manufacturer, a purchasing agent, some just some great insights there in a, in a good wrap. Um, so that's the Infocom of Solutions. The, the one thing I, I took yeah. issue, not slight issue, I'm, I'm somewhat poking fun at Jonathan, but uh, AVB is TSN. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say about that. So. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, in all seriousness, the Avenue Alliance has, has since has moved from AVB, which is Audio Video Bridging, to TSN, which is Time Sensitive. Time sensitive. Yeah. So. But that's actually a really good point because, again, with the alphabet soup of acronyms, there, there's always a great moment of clarification, looking at the glossaries, making sure we're all on the same page because we still, I still use AVB. Just this morning I was saying AVB, and then I remembered AVB TSN, but then I thought, uh, you know, we, we all have that moment of reflection and saying, let's make sure that we're using the most up-to-date and current terminology that really does reflect all of the advances that are happening. I mean, the TSN movement is, is really interesting, and Dante versus TSN is certainly something that a lot of people are very much invested in. Well, and, and you guys, I mean, people who report on it aren't the only ones. I mean, you've got manufacturers who either have AVB embedded in their product names, right, in the, yep. in the serial number, in the, exactly. the product name, or it's still on their on their site, in their in their literature, in their their lead behinds, like like we were talking about with Penny. Yeah, and that's and that's of course a perennial conversation. You know, you also have HD based T or HD over IP, and then you have companies saying, well, we offer both. You know, we offer the best of both worlds, or certain people aligning around one flagpole and saying, no, we believe that this is the best way forward for these reasons. So it's very interesting, and I I always look at I try to look at it 
very equally and just see what case by case is required. And so whether it's a, you know, a Wirestorm matrix switcher that's using HD you know, distribution control or whatever it might be, case by case rather than one standard being the, you know, the end-all be-all for that particular uh, application or vertical market or whatever. All right, what else do you have? Uh, from the Aiming Network POV, the courthouse video, I mean, it's, a, it's now two weeks old, but I'm just really passionate about it because I think that really harrowing footage of D Dylan Roof shooting, et cetera, is in people's consciousness. And video telepresence, video conferencing is a large part of the story, and I followed it very closely and had a couple of conversations with district attorneys and tech managers who work in the legal sector. And a lot of folks are saying that some of the newer legal facilities are building policies around video arraignments, video testimony, secure video links. So it's a great conversation to have. Uh, and so that's why I wanted to bring that up to the community as well, just as a reflection piece uh, it's an update of a piece we did last year. Tim Crydell did some excellent reporting for that, and I did a few more interviews and updated it. Right. So that's the courthouse video. And I think I also sent to you a post-ISTE, so the Instructional Technology or Technology and Education Conference that was a week and a half ago in Philly, and that was about 21,000 attendees, K through 12, a lot of Google certified educators and ed tech experts. But there was a great blog that came out from a Google certified educator who was speaking about the, the hashtag Black Lives Matter, but as a, a larger conversation about inclusion in ed tech. And I think while she's focusing on inclusion in K through 12 school districts in ed tech, but just thinking about what diversity means in an industry such as ours and what framework the AV world could think about inclusion and how we can encourage student interns, you know, in the higher ed space because a lot of interns or part-time students will work at the help desk. That was when I taught in the university. We were mostly staffed, at our help desk was mostly staffed by students. So how do we encourage leadership technology roles among people of color and students who are often underrepresented because the AV world is a great uh, potential for uh, career and mobility. They're great jobs to have. So how can we make it more inclusive? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing that, uh, you know, it, it's been interesting to watch over the last few years is um, kind of the inclusion. Um, you know, it's been written and said by more than one person. So I'm not breaking new ground here, but you know, there is years past uh, the AV industry was you know a bunch of old white guys. You know that that just flat out what, what it was, and it's been interesting to kind of watch that uh, watch that develop over the last few years. So yeah, and your Very podcast cool. with the women in the women of Infocom, and I think it was Aaron Bolton and Megan and uh, Betsy Jaffe was great. I listened to that, and I just so applaud the the industry, and I think there's great conversations being had, and I just encourage it and support it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much. That's that's the time we have for this week. That person right there is Margot Duwahi from AV Technology and, and uh, AV uh, and, and New Bay Magazine. So thank you, ma'am. 
Thank you. How can people find you and or AV Technology? At Twitter, uh, the Twitterverse, I am at technologymag and avnetwork.com right. on the interwebs. On the interwebs. Uh, also with us is my buddy, my pal, Miss Penny Settler from Draper. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. It's been uh, fun. How can people find you and or Draper? On Twitter, you can look for us at Draper Inc. That's actually me. Or at Draper AV, my colleague Terry, who's also one of the Cedia tweets. I meant to mention yes. that a while ago. We were talking about Cedia. Um, on the internet, we are draperinc.com. Yeah, and you guys just had a, a really cool announcement um, for uh, for Canada. Uh, you have a new a new uh, new partnership in Canada. Um, uh, Matt Scott from AV Nation actually got a chance to to interview them, and, and it's on our website the the video. And yeah, I, I I sent him an, an email when it, when we finally got it up and found, and that's a whole other story. Um, I said, here's here's the video. Um, can you write a piece? Because I'm not smart enough, or at least have the knowledge for Canada to meet to understand what this means, right? Uh, so Penny, from from Draper's standpoint, can you tell you know a big dumb American what that means to have a, a, a significant presence in Canada now? Well, what it means is that Draper Canada will serve as a distribution sales service center warranties. Um, they will save, really, our dealers in Canada will save money dealing with Draper Canada because they'll be able to buy the same price they would, but they don't have to import themselves. They, the products come across the border in larger shipments. We'll consolidate whenever we can. Yeah. And... Um, Draper Canada will give them, um, you know, service and warranty help locally. They also have salespeople across Canada. They have more salespeople out there than we do. Oh wow! So it's a win-win. All right, very cool. Yeah, it was one thing that I was like, okay, this is awesome, Groovy. You have a Canadian presence. Oh, we've awesome. had a Canadian presence for but, a long time, but, but you have an actual Draper Canada now, which is which is the bigger. The bigger yes. All right, uh, Mr. Tucker, sir, thank you so much for, for putting up with me for an hour again. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Uh, how can people find you? Uh, of course, anywhere on social media, at Tucker2s or some variation therein. All right, very good. Uh, my name is Tim Albright. Don't look for me. You'll find, you know, anyhow. Uh, but uh, go by the website if you would, please, avnation.tv, avnation.tv. You'll find this program and a host of others. Brand spanking new website, at least about, yeah, it's a month old. I guess I have to stop saying some brands make a new, but it's a new website. So uh, Matt Scott, the aforementioned Canadian, uh, Bradford Ben, Josh Rago did a bang-up job with it, so we're very, very happy with it. Still doing some tweaks, uh, still doing some adjustments to it. Um, still adding Infocom uh, videos. I think we've got like three or four left, and then uh, then, uh, then we are spent, uh, at least for this year. Uh, we've talked about it before. We're headed to Cedia 2015, Cedia Expo. Uh, we are a bunch of us also are heading to the CECI summit if you're going to that, so check this out there. Uh, but yeah, uh, Georgie, we got anything? Any new shows coming up? We've got a new EdTech coming up in about a week or so. A new state of control. Mm -hmm. uh, um, we have a new live live coming up. New live live. Uh, uh, we have one was, um, was recorded at Edinburgh, right? Yeah, and another one that was recorded right after that. So we'll have two coming down the pipe very shortly. Yeah, very cool. All right, yeah. So go go by the website avnation.tv, avnation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for watching. This has been AV Week.